listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our episode in a moment, but first, Paula and I wanted to thank you for all of your support over these years. Few podcasts ever reach over a million downloads, and we owe all the thanks to you. If you would like us to reach two million downloads, consider supporting us in the following ways. One, go to patreon.com slash ohiomysteries and sign up. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash ohiomysteries. Two, go to ohiomysteries.com and select the PayPal donate button. Three, leave us a five-star review of our podcast. Four, send us ideas, stories to feedback at ohiomysteries.com. Five, and lastly, but most importantly, tell a friend and family member about us. I've even helped people find us by putting it on their phone and subscribing. Now, let's throw another log on the fire campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. co-host Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi everybody. Tonight, we're going to take you on an unusual journey through three states. Just follow along with us and let's see where we land. It's December 9, 1965, the late afternoon, not yet 5 p.m., but this is winter, and not yet 5 p.m. is dusk, the darker side of twilight. In Lapeer, Michigan, an hour's drive north of Detroit, something falls out of the sky into a field. Witnesses alert the county sheriff. It looked like it was on fire, they said. Deputies hurry to the scene and have a look around, but they can find no evidence of a disturbance. They find a few bits of shiny metallic foil strips, about an inch long, a sixteenth of an inch wide, but they aren't scorched. There's no way of knowing if they are related to anything. The phone at dispatch rings again, this time from the pilot of a small plane who has spotted four or five small grass fires south of Lapeer. Deputies leave the field to go check it out. Right about the same time, a hundred miles to the southwest in Jackson, Michigan, the parents of a 13-year-old boy call police. Something landed in the field near their home. Their son found it, a metallic object, maybe 15 pounds, and made a hole two feet deep, and it was still hot. Outside of Detroit, pilot John Pridnia, a 43-year-old behind the controls of a puddle jumper he's taking to Toledo, reports a strange sight, a contrail, very high in the sky, a puff of smoke, an orange flash, then it was gone. Looks like it might be something that crashed into the river that separates Detroit from Windsor, Ontario. In the Detroit suburb of Gross Point, Officer Edmund Dinthoy saw it too. To him, it was a brilliant white light, so intense it cast his shadow on the ground. Nobody can say what it was. A plane? A meteorite? 
It was definitely in the early days of satellites, but we did have a growing number of space junk up there. And this was the midst of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. It was an unnerving thought, the idea that maybe something from the Russians had penetrated the Midwest. The Coast Guard responds to the calls about the river, and they ply the water slowly, not sure what they're looking for. There's no debris. Now it's in Toledo. A fireball, residents report. A blinding flash of blue-white light in the sky, northeast of the city. Dale Seaving is working his shift at the Kent Owens Machine Company when he follows the movement over his head. Pieces of the tail appear to be tearing off. Then it explodes. From out of the ball, smoke. Fragments falling to the earth. He's certain it must be a plane. Law enforcement calls the nearest air tower. Is anyone missing a plane? Nope. Not that they know of. The police officers can't even pinpoint where the crash might have happened in order to check it out. In Wood County, south of Toledo, 16-year-old Judy Wallace is with friends who grow curious about the burning orb in the sky, probably a quarter mile away. They rush after it to see if they can catch up, but it's too fast. All that is left in its wake is a trail of vapors. In the county's Portage Township, Elmer Dean is finishing up a day of working on a home on Mermill Road when he sees the same flash. He tries to get the attention of his co-workers, but by the time they look up, it's gone. And just like Judy... All that remains to prove he hadn't imagined it is a smoky tendril. Another 90 miles to the east, and the good people of Lorraine County have their eyes glued to the sky. Mrs. Ralph Richards caught the light and movement in her peripheral vision, and she looked up through the bare branches of the trees near her home. It looked for all the world like someone had spiked a volleyball, after lighting it on fire. The pieces were still falling off. The Illyria Fire Department hunts down reports of grass fires and finds about ten of them, all spread out in a 1,000-square-foot area on the west edge of town. They put them out before they can grow into trouble. Lieutenant Jack Trumbull considers the pattern and concludes something slammed into the ground and spun off the hot embers. Whatever it was, it's disintegrated. The bulk of the fireball is still moving eastward. It reaches Cleveland, sailing over Lake Erie and reflected in the water's surface. In the suburb of Berea, Dr. Paul Anier, director of the observatory at Baldwin College, was expecting a meteor shower later in the week. The Geminids are a reliable spectacle every December, but 
even if they did arrive ahead of schedule, which is unlikely, this fireball doesn't resemble them at all. The meteor shower is a show of faint shooting stars, not bright white flashes and explosive debris. Further south, in Summit County, a 12-year-old Park Martin calls the local newspaper to alert them to a bright comet soaring through the sky. In Caga Falls, Sterling Wheeze bears witness to pieces falling to the ground while the greater mass continues out of his sight. A Canal Fulton woman talking to her neighbor in Stark County is at a loss to understand the phenomenon. Oh, look, she warns her neighbor, the moon's coming down and there are sparks flying out of it. The object moves on. In Painesville, Raymond Wallings, yet another private airplane pilot, watches something plummet into Lake Erie. And even farther east, near the village of North Eaton, another piece breaks off and crashes into the ground. From his backyard, 11-year-old Brenton Hartley watches the freakish incident, then, doing what young boys do, races after it. It landed in some dark woods. He moves into the trees cautiously, scrunching his nose at the funny smell it's emitting. The woods, the dark, the smoke, the smell, his courage reaches its limit. He turns and runs home. He tells his mom, but Catherine Hartley isn't going anywhere near that thing. She calls police. They check out the woods. There's nothing there. And if this thing is soaring over Ohio's northern border, what, pray tell, is crossing the sky to the south? A couple hundred miles away on the other side of the compass, people are calling authorities in Athens County. They needn't have bothered. Personnel at the Amesville Fire Department saw it for themselves, a bright light that lit up the horizon. Convinced it was a plummeting plane, they rushed to the rescue, but they aren't sure where to go. In the end, they find nothing. Back along the shores of Lake Erie, the object crosses into Pennsylvania, and the switchboard in the city of Erie lights up. A flash of light, witnesses report. Orange, some say. Bright white, say others. A tail of illuminated smoke, maybe three miles long, they say. The unidentified flying object finally meets its demise in southwest Pennsylvania, in the woods just outside Kecksburg. The white ball takes on a blue tinge like an acetylene torch. It sets off a shock wave as the energy built up before it releases in a violent flourish. Then it slams into the ground, igniting a small fire. Pennsylvania State Police send investigators to the site. So does Major Hector Quintanilla. Quintanilla is in Dayton, Ohio. He's chief of the Air Force's Project Blue Book, based at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. 
It's their job to check out UFOs. Make sure they aren't something that will threaten the country or its people. They rope off the area. They call in U.S. Army engineers and civilian scientists. They tramp through fields and forests around Kecksburg for hours with Geiger counters in hand. They tell the public they turned up absolutely nothing. Eventually, they call off the search. Officials pour over reports from 23 different aircraft pilots, and they learn a seismograph 25 miles southwest of Detroit had recorded shock waves that might have indicated when the mysterious visitor entered the atmosphere. They even check in with NASA because, hey, it's 1965, and we actually had a couple of astronauts floating around in space. Frank Borman and James Lovell were in Gemini 7, circling the Earth on their sixth day of orbital flight. But Gemini 7 was too far south, the fireball out of its range. After the experts weigh in, most settle on the theory that it was a meteorite, or more specifically, a bolide, a piece of stone or iron or nickel traveling at speeds of up to 25 miles a second. When bolides enter the atmosphere, they typically explode into fragments. Nicholas Wagman, director of the Allegheny Observatory in Pittsburgh, says it wouldn't be unusual for the bolide to be completely consumed by its final resting place. Then again, he said, the last time a meteorite caused a shockwave, it was 1938. They didn't find anything then, either. Not right away. Later, pieces of it were found in Butler, Pennsylvania. So there was still hope. But years went by, decades, with no definitive answer. And then came 2005. In December of that year, for the 40th anniversary of the event, NASA released a statement about the whole affair and revealed there were fragments collected, that experts had looked them over, and that it was determined the object wasn't a bolide. It was a Soviet satellite that fell out of orbit and broke up returning to Earth. Unfortunately, they couldn't share any more details than that, they said, because records of those findings were lost in 1987. The Sci-Fi Channel didn't believe it. They were working on a documentary about what some people were calling Pennsylvania's Roswell a reference to a famous UFO incident in New Mexico years earlier. After a Freedom of Information Act request was filed, a court ordered NASA to look harder for the files. They reported they looked again and gave it their best, but the files just didn't exist anymore. Like the object itself, all that was left behind was smoke 
and vapors. Conspiracy theorists aren't satisfied. Some wonder if officials are covering up the discovery of an extraterrestrial spaceship, or, more likely, some say, a terrestrial creation. Many are convinced it was one of our own, a top-secret spycraft that the government wouldn't or couldn't admit to having. In documentaries about the incident, residents from the Kecksburg area said when it happened back in 1965, they found an object in the woods shaped like an acorn and as large as a Volkswagen Beetle, and on it, writing that resembled something like Egyptian hieroglyphs. John Hayes testified that as a 10-year-old boy, he watched them take it away on a flatbed truck. The TV show Unsolved Mysteries produced an acorn prop to use for an episode on the incident in 1990. The prop remains on display in the village, and is used as a centerpiece for an annual UFO festival. Every year, participants build fake spacecrafts and dress in costumes for a lighthearted celebration. But among paranormal researchers and UFO fans, the Kecksburg incident is serious business. There is no answer to this mystery that has satisfied everyone. Satellite, bolide, spy plane alien spaceship? There is, of course, one term that meets the parameters of all those things. It is and remains a UFO. History is the greatest adventure story, but does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. We are also proud to be part of the Evergreen Network. If you would like to hear other podcasts like ours, check out killerpodcasts.com. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.